All right, so we're in this series, and the series is called From the Brink. And as we think about this, our lives and these things that we encounter, there are some things that, that we feel like we're kind of teetering on. And when it comes up, you know when you're about there, you know. It's kind of like when you know that you're so hungry you're about to yell at someone. Anyone ever been there? You've been so hungry, and you're like, I cannot get food in my face fast enough. Oh, that's just me. <laughs> Ah, oh, that's embarrassing. It's okay. Um, so we have these places, these things, this character traits, all of this stuff that kind of brings us to this place where we find ourselves on the brink of doing something that's not the smartest thing to do. Or possibly it, we find ourselves on the brink of just calling it quits. It's like if we were standing on the, the edge of a cliff and it's one push will either put us over on safety or make us fall into a ravine. Now, I think one of the things that really, if we were talking, if we were honest, and we said, you know what, this is one of those things that I don't like about me, but I hope that no one else sees it. That's what we're going to talk about today. You've heard it said, pride comes before the fall, right? You've heard that. You've read that. You've witnessed that. Now, while we may not completely understand what that means, especially when we're trying to apply it to ourselves, but we're pretty certain when we see it coming for other people because it's easy to spot pride in other people, right? Because you see it all the time. You see it, you know that person, that person that you're like, listen, if they would just ask for advice, they would save themselves so much hurt. They would save themselves so much struggle financially. They would save themselves so much struggle in the workplace, in their relationship. But they're just too proud. They're too proud to ask for any advice. Or you know the, the person that, that is just clinging, so much clinging to their old ways, even when their old ways are bad. They cling to it because they don't know anything different. You see pride come out in the people that are always one-upping someone else. It doesn't matter if you said that you had a hangnail. They tell you that they had one that was worse than yours. They talk about their accomplishments. You may have gotten an A. Well, I got an A+. Plus. You may have gotten a car. Well, I got two. They talk about their accomplishments. They talk about their vacation. Their vacation was way better than yours, probably because you couldn't afford it, right? Their purchases, oh, their purchases, right? And here they are. They tell you about how much better everything they have or have done is than what you have or have done. But the problem is, you never asked. They just decided to tell you. And those are the people that you try, you secretly try, or maybe not so secretly, try to avoid. They're the people that get the eye roll response from us. Now, if you're thinking, I don't know anybody like that, maybe it's you. <laughs> They're the ones that when they tell you a story, they say the things that's cringeworthy. It's your, oh, my goodness, I can't believe, oh, here they come. And no one wants to get caught listening to them. No one wants to get caught in the latest update on how great they are, how good their life is, or how much worse that was than what you had. So how then can we tell 
How can, they, how can we tell if we're a person that has so much pride? How can, we, how can we tell if that's what we are going to become, prideful? How can we tell then if pride is an issue in our life? Because pride disguises itself in so many ways. In fact, if pride, um, if pride kind of has to be subtle, because if there's only one way that pride came out, if there's only one form of pride, then we could stop it in its tracks. But pride comes in so many subtle, small, nuanced forms. And it means that we're not just talking about people who are narcissists. So how can I tell if pride is an issue in my life? Well, the first way that we can tell is that if I rewrite the rules, I mean, justify my actions, however you want to say it, so that I can be in the right. If, if, if I have trouble understanding that I could potentially be wrong, it's like saying, you know what, I was wrong once, but turns out I was just mistaken. We find ourselves, we just can't bear to be wrong or to be seen as wrong. Pride is an obsession with ourselves. It makes us desire to project. It makes us desire to protect, to manipulate, to pretend, to imitate, to inflate, to brag. Pride is not just, though, for overly confident people. Pride is also seen in those who reject personal responsibility. If their life ends up in a ditch, well, it wasn't their fault. Pride also lives in the insecure. It lives in those who are insecure. So number two, how others see me is more important than how God does. If you spend more time managing your image, managing what you think others think of you than becoming the person you're pretending to be, maybe how others see you is more important than how God does. Unaddressed pride will destroy. It'll destroy you. It'll destroy those that you care about. Number three, third way. I doubt God loves me. I doubt God's love for me. Pride causes us to doubt God. It causes us to, to step back, think about it. In, in the garden, if you're familiar with the, the, the whole creation story, Adam and Eve and the first sin and all of those things, it, it was pride that caused them to doubt God. This idea that God was holding out on them. Pride causes us to wonder if God truly does love us. And when that happens, pride destroys empathy. Pride creates division. Think about this. How many of you have a prideful family member? And in fact, it has caused serious ripples in your family. In fact, it may have estranged parents from children. It may have estranged siblings from one another. Pride creates division. Pride ignites jealousy and it deadens your soul. But the funny thing about pride is it starts to make you feel like the things that you think, the things that you do, they're absolutely 
normal. But pride ends up costing you your relationship with God. But you'll create a story that says otherwise. Your pride will cost you friendships, but it'll leave you feeling empty. The stakes could not be any higher because pride runs deep. And pride's not just a problem for those who feel that they are at the center of the universe. You know, at one point in my life, I was bivocational, and I had a boss, and, and we went over to their house, and, and I was just, you know, we were talking and hanging out and those kinds of things, and, and, and his wife comes up and says, hey, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something about Greg that you may not know. She goes, this is Greg. This is everybody else. Greg apparently set himself up to be the center of his own universe, the center of every relationship. And when pride, it's, it, it gains its fuel and it is made bigger and greater by our own self-obsession. And we come to the realization that either I'm so great, but here's the other thing. Self-obsession is not always self-absorption. Sometimes it's self-deprecation. So you say, I'm not that great at all. Pride runs deep. Pride takes our thoughts about us and replaces God's thoughts. Instead of saying, God, whatever you think about me, I want that to be what I think about. Instead, we say, God, I reject what you say about me, and I replace it with what I think. So we compare ourselves. We compare ourselves to one another. We choose people. We choose people that we think that we're better than, and so we surround ourselves with those people so we can feel better about ourselves. The thing about pride is it's never something that we want, uh, that we, that we want to do over time. We always, when we're prideful, we want a shortcut. Think about how many times you've chosen to do something halfway just to get the result that you wanted. And I think that's why we're suckers for marketing. How many of you, don't raise your hands because this might be embarrassing, how many of you have been sucked into that 30 days to a new you kind of a thing, right? All you got to do is take one pill and you'll drop two sizes, right? First of all, that's not good. Do one push-up and you got biceps for days, right? That doesn't work. But here's the thing about pride is it makes us start thinking about that we are the ones that create every opportunity. We're the ones that are either responsible for our greatest uh, uh, achievements. And so what we do is that we become performance-driven in every single thing that we do because our performance is our identity. We believe that that grade that we make or that paycheck we bring or the, the, the title on the door, the business card that we have. Do we still have business cards? That thing, that identity is our success, our performance, what others think. Now, here's the thing. I love progress. I believe that healthy things grow. But if our identity comes from our performance, and our successes go to our head. But here's the problem. When we fail, 
goes straight to our heart. Are you the kind of person that wants success so much that you can't celebrate the success of someone else? That's probably one of the biggest pride checks in our lives. If you can't celebrate the success of someone else, then you may have a pride issue. If they win and you groan, if their win becomes a loss for you, you become so self-focused on winning that you push gifted people out of your life. In fact, it kind of works its way not only in the workplace or at school, it works its way into family. Think about it, the family gatherings, it's that family member that you avoid because they are so stinking successful. And not, on, not only that, they're good looking too, right? And so you, uh, you avoid them. Or maybe in the workplace, it's somebody that, that is completely ha- has better accomplishments, bigger accomplishments. And you walk into a meeting and you go, well, it was going to be a good meeting. Because their success is more than you can stand. And what happens at work and at family gatherings? You talk about them. You talk about them behind their back. And our pride, our pride increases our desire to control everything. If insecurity is in the driver's seat of our lives, we, des- de- we desire to not add anything from anyone else. Instead, we put ourselves in this place where if I don't add an insight, if I don't give my knowledge into everything that I encounter, then someone else, someone else may get credit. Someone else might get put in the spotlight. And we desire to control it all. So what happens then? What happens when pride builds your life? Maybe some of the things that we've identified just so far have, have been sticking out a little bit to you. And maybe, maybe it's not something that you can really see yet because it's just so subtle going on. But when pride works in the mix of our life, what happens is slowly over time we become so obsessed with ourselves And left unchecked, pride leads to a hardened heart. Pride keeps us from taking other people's counsel because we determine that the rules, well, the rules, they don't apply to us. If you read the, the Bible, you read particularly the Old Testament, you're going to find that the heart is a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament. Take King David, for example. King David was was arguably one of the best kings of Israel's history. In fact, at one time, God had said that David was a man after his own heart. God, God created this place where David became a king of Israel, and he made this rabble, this ragtag group of men that had, had no leader, and he led them and built a great nation. In this great nation, he led without becoming hard-hearted, almost. 
We know that David struggled in his life. We know that David was, was at war with this, with this thing that was going on inside of him. We see that in his journal, the book of Psalms. So much detail of his longing for God, his longing for God to change his heart, to change his mind, to bring him solace, to do all kinds of things, to bring down wrath. I mean, we find all kinds of things that David was saying to the, to the Lord. And David was trying to be a man that would be called after God's own heart. But here's the thing. David was at the pinnacle of his success, and his success opened the door to pride. And his success shifted his focus. You're probably very familiar with this story. And it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It starts this way. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his servants, and all Israel but David remained at Jerusalem. David was not where he should have been. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon. David was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So what does David do? He goes, oh, I can't. And he goes and he walks back into his room and, and prays to the Lord and, and, and just moves on with his life. That's not what happened because David was at a place in his, heart, in his life, in his heart, where he was not where he was supposed to be. His pride had kept him separated from doing the responsibilities that God had laid on him. And so what does he do? David sends for her. He sends for her. He says, hey, listen, um, there's a, I was out there on the roof and I just happened to glance over. I mean, just happened. And there was this lady, kind of peculiar, and I was just curious, do you know who that is? And the servant says, hey, listen, isn't that Bathsheba, the wife, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Right? As a question. But David sins for her anyway, and he charms her, and he ignores the fact that she is married to Uriah. And David gave in to his, his desire, this hardened place of his heart, and he only thought about what he wanted. He only thought about his own desire. And he was soon faced with a problem. Turns out, Bathsheba was pregnant. So David devises a horrible plan. Not, well, horrible and it was just a bad plan, but horrible as in it was a bad plan to cover up his immoral actions. He calls in her husband Uriah from the battlefield, and he tries to manufacture a way for Uriah to go to his house and be with Bathsheba. So he invites Uriah in, talks about, hey, how are things going out there? How's the battle? Great, 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 great. Hey, listen, I'll send you back tomorrow. Why don't you go home? Because what he was counting on was, one, for Uriah to be really bad at math, and two, 
that Uriah would seek personal fulfillment while others were out battling for the king. David, what he did not consider was that Uriah would act with honor, not just once, but twice. And so David found himself with only one option left. Kill Uriah. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 14. In the morning, after he had gotten Uriah drunk, in the morning, after he had sent Uriah back to his home and he slept outside, after he had made this man drunk and thought maybe he would go and do what any man would do. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. My dearest Joab, in the letter he wrote this. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. Maybe writing this as Uriah is standing right in front of him. Set him in the hardest, the fiercest fighting, and then once he's settled in there, draw the forces back so that he may be struck down and die. So Uriah dies in battle. And David took Uriah's wife to be his wife. So what is it? What is it that happened to David? Pride made David think that the rules no longer applied to him. David followed his own selfish desires, and his heart, it lost its softness. Because David knew better. He knew better, but his heart had no longer been sensitive to doing the right thing for the right reason. If he was sensitive to doing the right thing for the right reasons, he would have been on the battlefront with his men. He would have gone out in the spring as kings go to war and gone to war, which I don't know why spring was the time to go to war, but hey, right? But instead, he gave himself over, maybe to a self-pity and loathing. Who knows what was going on inside of his life? But here's the thing. He gave himself over to his selfish desires. His pride set him up for a big fall, and David's life was never the same. Turns out the baby was lost. The family spins out of control. If you read the account of David's family after this, it's rape, treason, plotting, division, scheming. It all ran through his house. A man after God's own heart began to seek his own. Throughout the Bible, God wants to do so much more in the lives of his people but they could not, but God could not because their hearts were hard. It was no longer pliable and it no longer said, yes, Lord, whatever you ask of me, I will do. 
is a hardened heart that says, what's in it for me? So what does a hard heart look like? A hard heart is superior, judgmental, unaccountable, isolated. It's superior that that we find ourselves feeling like we need to be better than someone else. We need to, to be in a situation where others are lower than us. And we tend to be judgmental. We judge others. We talk about them. We bring up things that we shouldn't even be bringing up. And we, we surround ourselves in a place where we're unaccountable. We may have lots of people around us, but the people that are around us, they only tell us what we want to hear. And we become isolated because what happens if all you do is brag? people leave. They stop tolerating you, and you're left at the end empty and alone. So how do I battle pride? How do I battle pride? It, and, and here's the thing. It, when when you're, the story of your life, when the story of a decision you've made, when the story that you encounter in, in the moment, when, when it's a story What kind of story do you want to tell when it's only a story that you tell? How can you battle against the pride that goes on in your own heart? The answer in short is humility. Humility can get you out of what pride got you into. The easiest way for us to to cultivate humility is from a young age. From a very young age, if we learn how to cultivate humility, then we're not going to run into an issue where pride runs rampant through our lives. Even if 40 is the new 30, that's not young enough. So there has to be another way for us to grow in humility. The second way we can grow in humility, if if we can't cultivate it from a young age, the second way is by being humbled. And this is what happens to David, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan tells him the story about this man that stole someone else's sheep, and and David got super upset about it. And he said, you know what, this guy, he needs to be punished, and he needs to repay fourfold. And Nathan, in this really poignant moment, says, David, you are that man. The The mic drops. David goes white as a sheet, and he realizes, I sold everything for my own selfishness. Nathan says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. God says to David, I anointed you king over Israel. Do you remember, David? I anointed you king I delivered you out of the hands of Saul. I gave you his house. I gave you his wives. And I gave you the house of Israel. Not only of Israel, of Judah. And God said, and if this weren't enough, if this were too little, David, I would have added much more to you.
Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? So as a result, God told David that the sword would never leave his house. And that evil would rise up from his own house as well. And David was humbled. If you read on, you find out that, that one of David's kids tries to kill him, that he, he launches a coup against him. He gets run out of his own kingdom, and he runs away. And the sword did not leave his house. His kids make bad choices, horrible choices. David was humbled, and he was brought low. Because turns out, you can't really fall off the floor. But see, as, as big as humiliation is, humiliation is temporary. And humility, it has to be developed. For us to be people that live with true humility, we have to invite it into our lives. You have to invite humility in and cultivate it. So how do we cultivate humility? Well, I'll tell you that the humble act way differently than the proud do. And I want to give you a few practices that if you take them on, it will help you to begin to cultivate humility. The first one is this. Live with gratitude. Live with gratitude. Think about when you were a little kid. You didn't have an allowance. You didn't have a bank account. You didn't have anything. And you only had what people gave you. Kids are grateful when they know that they're dependent on other people's kindness. But see, the problem is the more that you have, the easier it is for you to live without gratitude. Do you want to take that same example? You take a child and you give them way more than they are able to be responsible for in what happens in their life. They begin to act with ingratitude, disrespect, and wild living. We live with ungratitude when we begin to think that everything that we gain from our hard work is from us. Because a grateful heart knows that everything, every good thing comes from God. That includes the money that you gain from working. That includes your mind. That includes the breath that you have, your possessions. God has provided you with every single thing that you need. And he said, what I give you is not just for you. God wants you to share with others for their benefit. 
So we need to learn to express our thankfulness. Learn how to love the giver more than we love the gift. We need to learn how to offer prayers of gratitude to God. Love God more than anything that we have. And become people that don't take full credit for our own story. Because the truth be told, you didn't get where you are on your own. God put people in your path to help you. God put, if it's a bad path, then God put people in your path to warn you. Never claim full credit for the successes in your life. So maybe a question that we need to take with us today is, what am I grateful for? The second way to cultivate humility in our life is to serve others. To take the low place. Not to think poorly of yourself, but to take the place of service. To not live for recognition. To not live to be thrust into the spotlight. That means that you do the dishes, right? You sweep the floor, you stack the chairs, you give the good seat to someone else. This is a Baptist church, I don't know if I can say that. But you give the good seat to someone else, right? You volunteer, and you stop seeking things only for yourself. Seek to serve, and if success comes, and if perks come, share them. Share them with others. Do you have a great house? Great. Share it with others. Practice hospitality. Do you have a car that runs in some free time? Then share, share it with someone else who doesn't have one that needs to get to a doctor's appointment. Take them, learn with them, encourage them. If God has blessed you with something, I want you to hear it from my lips. That is absolutely wonderful. Take the blessings that God gives you in your life and don't keep them to yourself. That doesn't mean you have to give everything that you have away. What it means is that you learn how to share the blessings that God has given you. If success and perks come, share them with others. Number three, remain teachable. Always keep an open mind. And always seek to learn from other people. Even if they're younger than you. Even if they're under your authority. Don't let insecurity keep you from learning from other people. My mantra in life is this. Leaders, they're learners. Always keep an open notebook. Or open notepad app, whatever it is that you have, right? Always keep an open notebook. Learn from others. Learn from people that are smarter than you because I'll tell you right now, there are lots of people smarter than me or you. But that's offensive, right? There's always going to be someone that's more successful than you. Learn from them. Share then what you've learned with others. Because chances are, 
you're smarter than someone else, you're more successful than someone else, then share it. Help people to learn, to grow, to become better. Number four, recognize others. Delight in their success. You can learn a lot about your own heart when someone else succeeds. If you cheer for them, chances are your heart's in a good place. Oh, but if you're threatened by their success, chances are your heart's in the wrong place. Because our pride wants us to be highlighted. It wants the spotlight to come straight on us. But humility enjoys the success of others. And it pushes others into the spotlight. And it even shares the stage with them. And let me tell you something. You would think that that highlighting other people, putting the spotlight on them would make you somehow irrelevant. But instead, what it does is it makes you more valuable. Sharing and putting people in places where they can succeed makes you more valuable than somebody that holds it in for themselves. So don't let fear and insecurity win inside of you. Celebrate others publicly. And when you celebrate, you know what it does for you? It destroys the work of envy and jealousy in your heart. The fifth thing to do is to be honest with yourself and with God. Pride is like a weed in your lawn. If your lawn is a lawn of humility, right, which I don't know what a humble lawn looks like, probably doesn't have the diamond pattern in it, right, which diamond patterns are pretty cool, right? Or is that, (laughs) it might just be me. I love a good mowed lawn. That's, that's, anyway. Pride is a weed in your lawn and you hate weeds, right? They just pop up. They just show up. One day they're not there. The next day they are. They pop up. They show up. And if you're not careful, the weeds take over, right? So how do we cultivate humility that we start pruning out all of this pride, pulling the weeds, fertilizing the good, watering the good things, all of the stuff that you do to have a good lawn? You seek after the healthy growth, and you get rid of the stuff that isn't. We need to learn how to become ridiculously honest with God. We need to learn how to check our motives, seek out the weeds of selfishness, of self-seeking thoughts, and our self-seeking behavior, and confess them to God. And don't just stop at confessing them to God, confess them to someone else. Have you ever read a passage in the Bible and just thought, Oh my goodness, that hits a little hard. The next passage we're going to look at, I'm going to want you to read several times over the course of this week. It's James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. If you're wise and you understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works, with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover it up with your boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. 
For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you'll find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. So where does your heart currently align? If you read this passage from James once more, where would your heart currently align? Does it align with wisdom? Or does it align with disorder and evil? Has pride subtly crept into your heart like a a weed in a lawn? Read this passage over and over and then learn to be brutally honest with yourself. Where is your character in this? Where is your pride in this? Where is your heart hardened in this? What do you need to confess? Of all the lies that we tell, the ones that we tell ourselves, they're the absolute deadliest. But the thing is, God knows the truth already. How about you bring them into the light? Cultivating humility develops a fulfilling life. So bottom line, get rid of pride. 